I will be reading uh, verses 16 through 30. John 5, verses 16 through 30. Hear the word of God. Am I on? Yeah? Good. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, a son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and that means next Sunday is Christmas. I'm not sure how this happens so fast. Raise your hand if you are ready for Christmas. The children are. <laughs> the, the, the young are. I, I am not even close to ready. My wife Ava and my son uh, John Calvin are in Berlin. At the moment they flew there on Wednesday uh, to surprise my daughter Rosie who lives and works there. Mia and Snuffy and I are uh, keeping the home fires burning this week. But uh, Ava and, and uh, Calvin will be home in time for Christmas in Pennsylvania. Typically, Advent is a season of lightweight sermons, lots of stories about trips to grandma's house and puppies wearing, you know, Christmas ribbons. And that's because Advent is a time when lots of visitors uh, are in churches and most pastors 
don't want to make their first impression with a sermon on double predestination. We, however, do things a little differently here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church. As most of you know, my normal preaching pattern is to work straight through whole books of the Bible at a time. This preaching method is called Lectio Continua. It was a method used by the reformer John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland in the 16th century. And it's a method uh, favored by many reformed and Presbyterian pastors. I use this method for two reasons. First... I never have to wonder, what am I going to preach on this week? I just look at my Bible, and I look at the next chunk of Scripture, and I have my sermon. I also like it because it forces me and it forces us together to deal with parts of the Word of God that, well, maybe we would rather avoid. Not all of the Word of God is easy to digest. Not every truth of Scripture is pleasant to hear. In a few weeks, we get to uh, read the end of John chapter 6, where we're going to see a whole bunch of disciples who've been with Jesus for some while leave because they don't like what Jesus is preaching. Imagine that. John 6, chapter, John chapter 6, verse 60, quote, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then in verse 66, John 6, 66, we hear these words. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Imagine. Imagine missing out on Jesus because you don't like some part of what he has to say. I'm sure that they liked some of the things that Jesus was saying, but they weren't willing to receive the whole message, the entire word of God. And so they simply miss out on Jesus. When I was at Princeton Seminary, these difficult parts of scripture were called by some people, texts of terror. And people who preached on them were accused of being terrorists. You got it. Well... I don't know about that, but I do know that sometimes a little healthy terror is what we need. The Bible repeatedly tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All of us should aspire to be theophobes, God-fearing people. And churches should be in the business of promoting theophobia, the fear of the Lord. Last week's sermon wandered through some swampland with an excursus on 42 words from verses 3 and 4 that don't appear in the early manuscripts. I hope that didn't put too many of you to sleep. I'm glad some of you are back this week. Our text for this week and for next week bring us into some serious theological territory, so be warned. I am confident, however, that because Jesus spoke these words that we read this morning... That God will richly bless us as we study them and as we uh, let them find their place in our lives. But before we turn to the heavy theology, I want to read you a poem, or maybe it's a prayer, uh, for this Christmas season. It's called A Right Christmas, which I think is a pun on A White Christmas. It's by our own Stephen Clark. 
Pageants with rosy-cheeked, wire-dangling angels, elegant costumes, mannerly beasts, all in a comfortable auditorium with padded seats and a good view portray a tidy Christmas event. Not at all like the reality of that first Christmas. The birth of Jesus was not neat, more like chaos and filth. A manger in a cave covered in bovine and donkey slobber is not pretty or sanitary. Filth was everywhere. Pain, noise, stench, the smoke from oil lamps and a small fire, the damp and dirt floors, the screams of Mary and labor answered by the bothered bellows of assorted animals. A raw place, an impractical place for a birth of such occasion. There was a grander spectacle out in the fields for a hand-picked audience of a few scruffy shepherds, but even they smelled of sheep dung and campfire smoke. All in all, the first Christmas was not a pretty sight. It was a hot mess, kind of like us, smelly and rumpled, bumbling our way toward holiness like day shepherds awestruck in the middle of the night, the angel's song ringing in our ears and echoing in our needy hearts. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. May his peace rest on us in all of our sloppiness. Amen. So let me rewind this film a bit to remind us of the events that have brought us to our passage this morning, excluding the prologue for a moment. What we've seen thus far in the Gospel of John is this. First, John the baptizer sees Jesus at a distance and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Jesus begins to call his first disciples, Andrew and Simon Peter, who had been disciples of John the baptizer. He calls Philip and Nathaniel... Having seen Nathaniel at some distance supernaturally sitting under a fig tree. And Nathaniel then declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Later, Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And then in Jerusalem, Jesus makes a whip. And he drives out the animal sellers and the money changers from the temple courts. And then later in Jerusalem at night, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a leader of the people. And he tells him that he must be born again if he wants to see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then leaves Jerusalem and he goes home back north. And on the road in Samaria, he meets a Samaritan woman at the well, and many people in that town are converted. Now once back at home, once back in Galilee, Jesus runs into the an official whose son is sick, and Jesus heals this son without ever seeing or touching him. And then sometime later, back again in Jerusalem, Jesus asks a lame man who's been lying on the pavement at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, do you want to be healed? That brings us to where we are today. And in today's passage, we hear Jesus say a whole string of provocative things about his own identity and about his relationship with God. And it is, frankly, a wonder that he did not get himself killed on the spot. 
Jesus begins by calling Almighty God His Father and by calling Himself God's Son. Jesus says that everything He's doing, He's seen God do first. Jesus says that God raises people from the dead and so does He. Jesus says that God has given Him the right to judge all of humanity. Jesus says that to honor Him is to honor God. Jesus says that if you believe in Him, you will have eternal life. Jesus says that God has life in Himself, and He, Jesus, has life in Himself. Jesus says that one day dead people in their tombs will hear His voice and will come out. I don't know what you make of that. But I hope that you see how outrageous Jesus might have sounded to the people around him. Now maybe these statements don't come as a surprise to us because, well, we've heard them for years and years and centuries and we're kind of used to this about Jesus. But let me tell you, when a man stands in front of you and says these things about himself, you better have some really good reasons before you agree with him. When a man compares himself with Almighty God or equates himself with God, you better make sure that you are not too easily convinced. Raise your hand if you remember the Bhagwam Rajneesh. Proves how old you are, right? Yeah. Okay, some of us are old enough to... The rest of you will Google it. All right, the Bhagwam Rajneesh, he's a fascinating character. He was a Hindu holy man. He had a long white beard, he had a turban on his head. And back in 1981, before many of you were born, he bought a 65,000 acre ranch sprawling over two counties in rural Oregon and he opened a religious commune. The Bhagwam had so many disciples, so many followers living on this commune that they had enough votes to take over the county governments and the locals were, well, they were worried. Bhagwam claimed to be God and he had a fondness for Rolls-Royce automobiles. In fact, he owned 93 of them and his, his goal was to get 365 so he'd have a different Rolls-Royce for each day of the year. At the commune in Oregon, the Bhagwam had a daily ritual called the drive-by, in which his disciples, dressed in their orange robes, would line the dusty uh, roads of the commune, and the Bhagwam would drive by in his Rolls Royce, and he would wave at them like Santa Claus in a Christmas parade. And one journalist asked the Bhagwam, Why do you own so many Rolls Royces? And he answered, what else would God drive? When the Bhagwam says that he is God, we should be skeptical. When Jesus of Nazareth says these amazing things about himself, we need to appreciate how serious those claims are. Verse 18 is perfectly clear. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more. Not because he was only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You'll recall the purpose statement of the entire Gospel of John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31. Quote, now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples 
which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The claims that Jesus makes about Himself are outrageous. But they are also the God's honest truth. And upon the truth of them, every Christian has staked his life and his hope and his future. And John invites us to believe in Jesus so that we can have life in his name. I just want you to see what is entailed in believing in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to believe that he is who he says he is. That he is God Almighty. Now Christmas is just one week away, and the whole world, it seems, is lit up with Christmas lights and ringing with Christmas music. Some of those lights and some of that music actually come from people who are Christians who have trusted Jesus with their heart and their life. Others are just going along for the ride, and frankly, I think that's okay too. Christmas is a lovable holiday, goodwill and gifts for everyone, and I also think that it appeals to our democratic love of the underdog, a baby born to a couple who can't even get a room at the inn. It's a holiday of God's gentle willingness to come down from on high and to approach His people in meekness and in humility. On Friday night... I went to the Valley Christian School Christmas play, which was extraordinary. Every Christmas, children in thousands of churches tell the story of the advent of Jesus using the words of the Gospel of Luke. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Joseph went up to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. While they were there, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him at the inn. Now there were shepherds in the field watching over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. I can't hear those words of that story on the lips of an innocent child without getting choked up. God's condescension, God coming down to us in meekness and in humility, that message is part of the heartbeat of Christmas. But here this morning, we see in our reading from John another side of that same Christmas message. 
that the humble child is in fact Almighty God, that the infant laid in the manger is the judge of all humankind, the tenderness of the Christmas story cannot be separated from the power and the glory and the majesty of Christ, who is the Son of God. Who does raise dead to new life? Who is the creator of the universe? Who is the judge of all humankind? And as a result of his coming into this world, all of the forces of evil rage and the gods of this world seek to silence the endless praise that is offered to Jesus. And all of that raging opposition to Jesus began so long ago as we see in John chapter 5. But let me bring this home to us. If you love baby Jesus in the manger, and you get to see him again, 1015 down the hall, don't go wandering off to Starbucks. you got to see Mia and all your other kids. Mia, mostly. I'm like the worst parent at these things, okay? So there are like 80 kids up here on Friday night. There's only one that I'm looking at, okay? The most beautiful one. She did not star in the show. Come out for that immediately following this service. If you love baby Jesus in the manger, but have no time for Jesus, the Lord of the universe, then you have a problem. If you love gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but reject Jesus, the all-powerful judge of humankind, then you've missed the boat. If you admire Jesus the teacher, but can't wrap your mind around Jesus the eternal God, then you have not yet understood. If you are attracted to Jesus the carpenter, but don't know what to make of Jesus the creator, then you have yet to get hold of the mystery of the incarnation. The humanity and the divinity of Jesus are inseparable. We can no more separate His humility from His power than we can separate the grace of God from the law of God. They go hand in hand. The claims that Jesus makes about Himself are huge. They are outrageous. We don't need to sugarcoat this. Jesus claims more for himself than any ordinary mortal dare claim. And his claims were met with murderous opposition. And no wonder. But as followers of Christ, we hear the ring of truth in those claims. The reality of the identity of Jesus is just a hard fact. And we can't get around it. Because our eyes have been opened by the power of the Holy Spirit and we see that Jesus is God. If we don't take Jesus as His Word, that He is the Son of God, equal in power and and glory with God Himself, then we don't have hold of Jesus at all. C.S. Lewis in his bestseller, Mere Christianity, puts the matter this way. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I can't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says that he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up and say he's a fool or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. My prayer for us this Advent season, my prayer for us this Christmas season, is that we would fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, because anything else would be pure foolishness. Let us pray. Father God, it is by your Holy Spirit that the words of Scripture were inspired. And it is by your powerful intervention that they have been preserved for us down through the centuries. We pray this morning that the truth of your gospel would come alive for us in our hearts not through human wisdom, not through the power of reason, but through the illumination of your Holy Spirit. We ask for the favor of faith this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.